welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. We are here with you to bring you a special Halloween episode. We have a number of Halloween episodes this month, but this is one of the ones I've been most excited about because it's going to be all about Over the Garden Wall, the TV miniseries that ran on Cartoon Network a number of years ago, specifically about the new art book that's been released, which is the art of Over the Garden Wall. Um, You know, official fall ritual for me is pretty similar to a lot of folks I know, which is we sit and we rewatch the award-winning animated series Over the Garden Wall. Um, I I watch it every year, and this year I might even actually do it twice. Um, And with the new Dark Horse published uh, book, The Art of Over the Garden Wall, that second, that the second rewatch of the season is going to have some additional richness and meaning for me um, because I'll know even more about that making of the show, how the production was made, have a look at all of the beautiful stills, storyboards, and pieces of ephemera around the show that can really help you appreciate it in a different light. And joining me to talk about it today is the writer of Art of Over the Garden Wall, Sean Edgar. Say hello. Yeah, hey, uh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, I had put on Twitter that I was looking that I was looking for other folks who were interested in talking about the series to do a sort of a roundtable. And um, a Twitter mutual of ours said, why don't you have on Sean Edgar, who literally wrote the book that just came out? And I thought that's a good <laughs> idea. So yeah. you are meeting yeah, me in a place of fandom. Out. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It came out, and uh, I think people seem to dig it. But, I mean, when Pat is involved with anything, then you have Nick Cross. It's uh, it's hard for something not to look good, right? Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful book. So uh, do you want to tell our listeners a little, bit, a little bit about it? I would just say, folks, to, for anybody who hasn't seen the miniseries yet, it's on Hulu. Go watch it right now. Or in my case, it's been on my DVR for a number of years, preserved. Um but go watch the miniseries. It is a uh, absolutely beautiful piece of television, one of the most beautiful animated shows I've ever seen, one of the, my favorite animated things of all time. Very few things, I think, really capture the spirit of the fall season the way it does, and it transitions from sort of a spooky Halloween story to really encompassing a whole range of feelings and wistfulness and character development and growth and kind of brings in the coming of winter at the end. Um, so from here on in, we will assume that you have watched the cartoon series. It's only, what is it? It's like 10 little short episodes. So it's about yeah, the length I, of I mean, all in all, it's about, you know, like 16 minutes. Crazy. It's, it's amazing how much story and richness they can bring in. So go watch it and then come back and join us. Okay. So from here on out, this is a spoiler filled a hundred percent. We assume you see in the show production. Um, so, so, Sean, how did you get uh, the connected with uh, working on this project? Sure. So, I mean, mostly, for most of the time, I'm kind of in your position. Uh, I'm an editor. I'm a writer for various publications. And I was interviewing Pat for something. And uh, I'd seen the show and I'd adored it. Just looking over it, it seems like everything was so meticulously thought out. But at the same time, what Pat was drawing from was so absurd to what we consider as uh, modern mainstream consumers. Mm-hmm. So when you think of the influences that go into something and, and you think of what Pat put into Over the Garden Wall, I just really wanted to dive into it and explore those roots. 
And uh, so I emailed Pat and I said, we should do an art book. And he was down. And then I emailed Dark Horse and they said they were down. And I wish I had a more exciting creation story. But um, it was an incredibly easy, seamless project to get greenlit. And uh, from there on out, Pat and I spent possibly, man, I don't know, 30 hours on the phone just going over everything. So he'd compiled like these giant hard drives full of material from the show. And we're talking about like tons of scraps of paper that he did and uh, as well as other things from Nick, storyboard artists, sketch artists, designers, all of that. So there was a lot of material to go through. So the process was just going through that and uh, trying to put a narrative around it. And hopefully it turned out pretty good. Oh, absolutely. I, I feel like if this book it wasn't there, all of us fans would be chasing all, all down all these information on our own. And um, you kind of put the scavenger hunt together. <laughs> yes. I mean, the thing is, it goes deeper. There was stuff we didn't include that I can't quite talk about, but like, uh, I mean, Pat just went all out on this project and just the amount of tendrils through it. It was massive. Um, but I, I'm happy for what got put in there. It's just, it's huge. Yeah. I, for, to me, like one of the things that attracted me to the series beyond just the very high production values were how thorough and rich those world and setting were and how much it was a setting in place that I needed to see on film that I had missed and had been absent so much from animation, even like really great animation that's happening today. Um, and I listened a couple of months ago when I first started thinking about doing this episode, I listened to somebody else's podcast about um, over the garden wall. I shall not it's just a single episode of a somebody's show or isn't like a whole podcast sure. is dedicated to it. Wish there was, someone should do that, I would listen to it. Um, uh, anyway, and in it, uh, the person just didn't seem to understand the source material and like thought that it was making different references to, uh, they just didn't recognize the Americana and the different sources in that. And it made me sad to think that there's these chunks of American cultural history that I learned about as a student of art and that I don't think there's much literacy around right now. And um, people shouldn't have to all know these things, but people should have the opportunity to learn them. And I think that the show is, you know, a way that people might actually first see some of these visual motifs now who might not have been exposed to them earlier. And through the book, they'll actually be able to find out what are those sources, what are those references. And, um, oh, and yeah. Just yeah. Yeah, I mean, so much of what Pat, and when I say Pat, I mean Pat McHale, he's the showrunner and creator of the show, uh, was going through. I mean, a lot of it was, it kind of references his time in a place called Concord, Massachusetts. So when he was first going to college and, uh, and around Los Angeles, he just kind of felt the need to spend some time in a place that was, um, more historical, and as he said, quote-unquote, with more ghosts as, as opposed to kind of the glitz of Los Angeles, he went to this colonial, steeped in history, kind of sleepy place called um, Concord, and that really is the unknown. Uh, it even has a giant crust mill. Um, 
Wow. Everything about that place. And the Transcendentalists, they used to spend a lot of time there. And uh, I think if you want to see a real-life equivalent to sort of that autumnal segue, he, he kind of walked through it. But what he would say is that Over the Garden Wall mirrors his time in that, how he kind of went when there was a lot of foliage and how when he left, it was the bear of winter. Um, so it's definitely a devotion to, you know, Hudson River Valley paintings, Mm-hmm. As much as like McLaughlin Brothers, you know, board games and books, but also very much it's rooted in the East Coast and uh, where he yeah. was in Massachusetts. So that's pretty astute. Yeah, I think like I grew up in the Mid-Atlantic region um, and we did a lot of history focused regional tourism as a kid. Not not a lot of beach trips and amusement parks. <laughs> there was a lot more visiting of Jamestown and Colonial Williamsburg. Um and I, I think that these artistic styles uh, are particularly just remote from anything that a pop culture art is referencing. Like, I think that most of our fantasy visuals draw a lot from Tolkien and therefore from a very Western European British sort of visual tradition. Um, and then the younger folks are just really coming out of anime. So they kind of have this Westernized view of, Japanese perspective of folklore and history um, that they can sometimes wield without the right sensitivity. Uh, and we have, we have stuff in America too um, that has our own folklores and our own folk traditions. And I, I looking at the book, seeing how there's somebody pointed out that they were at risk of having uh, Greg look too much like Johnny Appleseed. And I just thought, <laughs> when was the last time somebody has freaking mentioned Johnny Appleseed to me in any kind of a conversation. Um, I, I can't, and I was like, Oh, that's right. With the hat. Like that's, that doesn't even on the radar. Um, the yeah. sort of way that, yeah, the sort of way that the cat illustrations are drawn. I, I as a cat owner, I, you know, like when you look at cats in real life, cats, cats these days, they don't look like cats in the old days. No siree. Uh, but like seeing sort of the Victorian cat postcards, because yes, cat memes have been going on since before, <laughs> before the internet, um, you can just see the whole different way of looking at animals. One of the fun things that I got reading the book was there was, um, they originally, uh, they, they were going to have the brothers get turned into animals briefly. And the animal that Greg was going to have been turned into was, uh, unclear whether sorry, that Wirt was going to have been turned into, it was unclear whether or not he was a dog or a bear. And that's because it was done in old time animation style. So who can tell anyway? And there would have been a whole bit around that. And I just wanted to laugh because like that kind of knowledge of the animation history and source material, I think brings a lot of beauty to this. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, when you look back at some of those old 19th century drawings of animals, it's not like they had photos. So it was kind of like a tin can game of just mm-hmm. like reading descriptions and trying to get it down. So it's funny when you look at the um, alligator and or crocodile from the pilot, it was based on a Jose Guadalupe Posada drawing. And it's not supposed to be anatomically correct. It's supposed to be kind of charming homage to how illustrators thought animals looked as opposed to what they actually look like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the whole entire look of the series being so handcrafted and hand-drawn is why it's beautiful. And it's something that really shows us like how it's done, how that process worked. 
I, I, I really hate modern computer animation. I think it looks ugly. I realize that my, my opinion of that is formed by how old I am. And I grew up, you know, before that was a thing. And then early computer animation was particularly ugly. So now I can't really see and appreciate the modern computer, computer animation that is better because I'm kind of scarred for life at how ugly the earlier <laughs> stuff was. But um, sure. it's sort of time and sensitivity uh, and shading and the colored pencil work and the painting that really helps to build the series. Like you can, by looking at this book, we can really see that art isolated. And I'm amazed that they were given the ability to do it for, for a project like this. Well, yeah, I mean, they had amazingly talented uh, people on it. I think the backgrounds were one of the main points of focus. And you had like Nick Cross and uh, Levine Jahanian and Chris Theriotis doing that work. And the fun fact, I don't want to wreck your world, but a lot of those were done in Photoshop, um, mm-hmm. which blew my mind because like they look so, so hand-painted and crafted with actual materials. But no, they were working with just, you know, generic uh, brushes on it but um with the second one i think it was yeah it was nick cross doing every background in that he really just sort of nailed that aesthetic and the color scheme uh throughout it and it's funny you can see the background saturate from episode to episode and the only one that kind of contradicts that was the third episode which was um school town follies and mm-hmm. that kind of rationalized in that the weather became slightly more lush and verdant because they found Beatrice, that so things were kind of looking up. But besides that, you can see this kind of tonal shift throughout the entire series on that. Yeah, I, one of the things I really appreciated was in the book, you have, you have an entire chapter for each of the episodes. And so reading the book, I got a picture of the order in which the show was created um, <laughs> yeah. and how that really formed the narrative. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit different. The first thing Pat came up with was um, what would become episode eight. I'm trying to think. It was the ringing of the bell was his first storyboard. Seven. But they said it was too scary. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny. You, you'd think there'd be a lot of notes for something this dark, but the only note they ever gave the creators was uh, to make uh, Lorena's or evil Lorena's teeth less sharp and jagged, which um, – actually made those teeth look a little bit more frightening. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they wanted to dive into it on a slightly softer note. And so they, um, they did the John Crops episode in the Tome of the Unknown pilot, and then they kind of went from there. Um, and they were so that, 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 that episode is available online. Like, I did not, I yeah. have not gotten to see the Tome of the Unknown until more recently. So folks, if you look up Tome of the Unknown on YouTube, you can completely legitimately watch the pilot episode, which did not air, which you have not seen. Um, the pilot episode is actually pretty distinct, I think, in some ways. Yeah, but, it's really uh, interesting. It wasn't quite as spooky as Pat wanted initially, but um, I think it looked beautiful. And uh, it, it's funny. Like it's, This is kind of going off topic a little bit, but do you know the Blasting Company, the people who did the music? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so... That entire plot is about this musician, and of course he's made of vegetables, but he's in this like car made of vegetables, and it breaks down. And the funny thing is when the blasting company were touring, what would methodically happen was they, they were in this converted vegetable oil touring car, and that <laughs> car used to break down all the time too. So it was this weird parallel that kind of preceded them coming on. 
which I always thought was kind of a charming story. But, yeah, there you have it. Wow, that's amazing. I, that episode to me, like, I, I'm completely obsessed with the series music. And now that the soundtrack is available on Spotify and other formats, I'm, I hope everybody else gets it due. But um, the, the, the music in that episode is much more, has, has more connection to, like, blues and that's not something which is a musical style which is not really used as much in the show. But um, I, I, I think the first glimpse of the series I had actually was part of the Husk and Bee episode. And I was just struck that somebody was doing early American, like, New England choral music on a children's show, like, I think my, like, I just couldn't have been more amazed that someone did that. And I think the range of musical styles that are all coming from American musical traditions in the show, like, there's, you know, I actually, like, listen, I, I listened to the storm track. I was, like, the soundtrack, I was, like, I, I, I need more of this. And I don't normally listen to these types of music. But, like, next thing I know, I'm, like, I'm, like, I need to hear Stormy Weather. And I'm, like, looking up Lena Horne on the Internet. Um, and sort of pulling for those other associations, listening to Showboat, which a musical I really have not given a damn about prior to this. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, the people they got for that was amazing, too. I mean, I used to listen to Chris Isaac when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. I don't know how old you are, but I used to get in trouble for watching the music video for which yeah. game. Yeah. And then it was like, yeah, he's, he's posing as this cat hiding in a giant pumpkin man uh, doing a Hoagie Carmichael song. Uh, but it worked beautifully. I mean, I, I think uh, Pat really had a knack for picking the right voices. And then Shannon Sussman um, singing in, uh, in episode eight, that was beautiful as well. But um, especially that episode, I think, worked out really well. And especially the song where they uh, go in initially to the barn, um, the Blasting Company used a startling array of styles that I would never think one set of musicians would be experts at mastering, but they did mm-hmm. it really well. And the cool thing is they didn't even use any digital instruments. All that was completely hand-paid. Mm. It paid off. And they had a very famous uh, you know, singer of American songbook type music. Was it um, George... Jones, I'm sorry, I, I thought I had this in my notes. Oh, okay. Jack Jones, it. yeah. Jack Jones, yeah. Who? AKA uh, the Frog. AKA the Frog. I have to say, when they pull back the reveal that the, that 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 he was the Frog, that the Frog had been singing the entry song, and that the Frog could sing, I just thought that was one of the things that made me happiest. I'm telling you, I, <laughs> I'm I'm always obsessed with the questions of who decides which animals can speak. And which animals can't. So this show is definitely entertained by those questions as well. Like they have all the jokes about the horse. Whose horse is he? Well, if he can speak, he's not anybody's horse. Which animals can talk? Which ones can't? You know, work trying to talk to the turkey who's pretty much just sitting at a table waiting to be beheaded. Um, and what an amazing inversion it is when it turns out that the frog of all the characters cannot just sing. He can speak. He can he can sing, and he is George Jones, and he is the storyteller. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one actually, like, ironically, or not ironically, um, when Pat was originally in Concord, when he was um, in undergrad, that's who he was listening to in Concord the entire time. So it trickled down all that time and still left an impression on him for this project. And uh, then he just kind of went for it and asked him to, uh, to sing on this song. And Jack said, yeah, so it worked out well. What an amazing thing. 
the other thing I've really gotten listening to the soundtrack is you have the full versions of all these songs that we only have smaller amounts of in the show. And sure. I'm totally fine with them being shorter in the show because a lot of the time they sort of think almost like they're continuing off screen. The music kind of builds the world to be bigger than what you're just seeing. But then now being able to go and listen to the full songs on the soundtrack is just such a treat. And if you haven't heard Langtree's Lament from beginning to end, where she goes <laughs> through the entire alphabet and various numbers, I, it just gets better and better. Like it, w- w- when you find out how long Johnny B has been gone for, spoiler alert, not very long at all. Um, like that stuff, which is all just revealed in the song and it compounds itself with how funny it is. Uh, and I think, you know, when you're trying to get that much story in such a short period of time, you're not going to be able to have the full songs, but now being able to have the rest of them available to us is an amazing gift. Well, I kind sort of wish it also yeah. included some of the instrumental stuff as well. Um, there's stuff that I have that I just got from research that didn't make on it. And that mm. I think is really quirky, but like the chase sequence, and I think it was episode nine, um, they were referencing... Bruce Springsteen a little bit and it, uh-huh. it's just really entertaining and not very long but it definitely is more evocative of watching the series just to have all that connected tissue in there too I don't remember if it they made do, it yeah. in but um, they also had Pat sings on one of them it's an homage to uh, the ballrooms of Mars and it's, in the episode it's when it's when Wirt wakes up first I think in episode 9 and I think that was amazing and that you realize Pat could be a creative director, an illustrator, an animator. And that's like, oh, man, that guy has a set of pipes, too. Uh, there's a lot of little things like that in the music. But the other cool thing about the music is that a lot of people behind the scenes contributed to, uh, to the soundtrack, too, and worked with the Blasting Company. Hmm. So I'm blocking his name, but um, actually one of the storyboard artists on Babes in the Woods contribute to both of those tracks too hmm. and I think it was more of a collaborative endeavor than I think a lot of people think it is but I think you know at the head of it I think it was uh, the blasting company definitely providing the right direction and uh, adding the finesse to it I, I there are pieces of the instrumental stuff available on the soundtrack but I'm sure that, yeah that there's more music that could ever be contained um, but yeah, there's like a bonus track. No, 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 Halloween. don't compromise. You tell them you want the entire thing. Yes, I want the entire thing. I want the entire thing. But no, they, they do have lots of bonus tracks on the digital release now. Um, oh, cool. What, yeah. Were, were there, what was something that you really did not notice or see in the show until you began working on the book that really has been a big eye-opener for you? Yeah, so I think what happened was I think um, – going into it, there's purposeful ambiguity around what the unknown is. And, you know, Pat, who, you know, wrote everything, wrote all the episodes and had the storyline preconceived, he doesn't spell out what it is. And then I was talking with another, uh, another guy who I don't want, who I don't want to say because of what I'm about to say next. He's like, Oh yeah. He's like, worth dying. And this isn't really an adventure with him and Greg he's just kind of in this liminal space between death and he's taking all these inputs that you saw when he was alive and they're filtering through his head right now, forming all these, um, you know, all these tales and all these narratives that kind of summarize and blanket his life. And I was like, Oh man, that's deep. 
But then if you go back, you can see hints in episode nine and ten of characters in uh, in the unknown. So you can see a woman in a costume of a bluebird. You can see a woodsman, I think, at some point. There's tons of little hints displayed throughout it. But then I talked with Pat. Pat said, yeah, that's kind of it, but kind of not. Uh, so he still added another blanket of ambiguity. So it's not quite as interpretational than that. And then Amelia Lavari also said it's a little bit more ambiguous than that. But I think just the entire act of walking through episodes 9 and 10 and trying to find uh, the Easter eggs. I don't know if they're Easter eggs because they're valuable to the plot, but the inspiration mm-hmm. of some of the aspects that are in the end of was uh, maybe my biggest eye-opening facet. Mm. Definitely. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely does. You know, I hadn't noticed Quincy Endicott's tombstone, for example, until I, I was looking yeah, at the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, little things like that. They're all, I mean, like, it goes so deep. I, I just didn't notice it initially. But, um, yeah, they're all there. One of the pieces of the show that's just like the smallest snippet that I'm just obsessed with and I could probably watch on a loop till the end of time is the little bit of the Highwayman's song. Um, from the tales of the dark of the dark lantern, and um, the the fisheye effect that the animation creates, and the ambiguity of why is this murderer allowed in this space. <laughs> Everybody knows he's a murderer. He's sort of standing there in the background, being creepy. Although here he will tell you all about how he murders people for money. Um, but he's part of this organized system and therefore he gets to exist there is just this amazing little bit. And that like 30 seconds of, of music that was written for it. Like I could just keep playing it over and over again, but the, his physical motions, it's like very much like old style, like Fleischer animated cartoon motion. Um, I love just seeing how they were able to do that. I saw in the in the notes for that episode, which I hadn't picked up on until I saw this book, was like, um, you never see anybody else leave the dark lantern. And the lantern itself, if you think about it, is really a metaphor for being trapped. You know, that's where the beast has trapped his hopes and his fears. They're all on the lantern. And like, so none of these folks are leaving. They're all they're all trapped in the lantern, too. Yeah, absolutely. And per your um, observation about the animation. Uh, there were two sequences handmade by Nick. I want to say Nick Cross, he was uh, the creative director. Um, mm-hmm. But he hand animated that as well as the intro piano sequence. So yeah, it, it's definitely a different, uh, a different take with a few added flourishes that you're not going to see anywhere else in the show. Um, but yeah, that's very observational of you. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's an interesting episode in that, Pat wanted it to be super, super dark initially, a little bit more horrifying. And Penn Ward, who's the creator of Adventure Time, that's one of the episodes that he worked on. So Penn created uh, the designs for everyone inside, and they're a little bit more uh, buoyant and goofy and quirky than I think um, Pat initially envisioned. So you have this kind of dark, melancholic, uh, you know, headless horseman vibe to the tavern going going on. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit of a sleepy hollow trickled in there, 
oh, but then yeah. you also have kind of the goofiness to it as well uh, because the character designs. I, I think Pat just kind of navigated that, including the uh, the Betty Boop inspired Tavern Keeper as well. But um, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny besides the wonderful performance of uh, the Highwayman. It's uh, you get you get word he's about to go up and. Um, it's funny because before they actually had him perform, Pat and Colin Dean, and Colin Dean was the voice actor behind Greg, uh, were yelling. Um, what did they yell? I'm trying to remember. I have in my notes somewhere. Sing, lover, sing. It's in your. I just yeah, they, they thought, sing, so. lover, sing <laughs> to try to make it more nervous. I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, like he just sort of improvises that melody and it doesn't quite work. Oh, my God. And the voice actor that they have singing, the uh, man who's telling, trying to basically upsell him on having a bigger wedding, um, is <laughs> such a blast. It's, like, not the kind of singing voice you get in contemporary settings at all. It's very, very Yeah, I'm blocking his name. He's a musician and he's great. He, was, uh, he has a really good NPR tiny desk special going on. I'll try to look it up oh, as we talk. Thank you. But yeah, everyone, everyone he snagged, like, how was super ingrained and incredibly talented. Uh, he really did get a murderer's row of talent for that. Completely agree. Yeah, the line about, like, um, there's plenty of money for every woman little boys get married. It just, like, cracks me up so hard as someone who, like, has witnessed the wedding industry <laughs> as it is, as it stands today. Um, yeah, right. And Pat and Oswald, I mean, sorry, I, I, I mean, it's just sort of like the, the, the character designs within that episode. Like, you have the band, which are all colonial dressed. You have the master and apprentice who are Regency. Like, they're kind of time-tossed people in that, in that setting. Uh, and then that lovely pencil illustration of a whaling ship as the stage backdrop. I loved that in your book, which everybody can buy now at Bookstores Nationwide. I got to see, like, a close-up of a corner <laughs> of that drawing of the whaling ship from the tavern and like those little details make me so fucking happy. Yeah. 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 They're definitely going for a more colonial vibe going there and, and it worked out really well for them. But um, yeah, I, I had nothing but, uh, but similar views towards that episode. It's, it really set the tone in addition to the last one as well uh, in Pottsville to uh, mm. for the entire mini series. It did such a great job of it. Yeah. I um, I mean, the, the the show as a whole is so smart and knowledgeable about uh, art in its art direction, and so knowledgeable about architecture and uh, design motifs and styles in a way that you don't see much of. In the um, Quincy Endicott episode, when Wirt explains how he can tell that it's not the same mansion, <laughs> and he specifically is like, "Well, Endicott's side is more Georgian." Versus this side, which is more of a French Rococo, I like could not have, I probably like squealed with light because I was like, that is all true. And somebody noticed. And they even have the language for saying those things. And of course, this is the sort of thing that Wart would know. Because that's the sort of shit that I cared about in high school. When I, I, I care about it yeah. too, obviously. But like, but like, you know, kids can be nerdy and, and, and not just be completely stereotypical about what interests they have and what kind of things they know. Um, and it was such a smart way to sort of reveal the true nature of that episode. Uh, but, the, but like, this is a show that knows those things, and this is a show that thinks it's okay to teach its viewers those things. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's uncompromising in more ways than one. 
specifically, I think, yeah, that was the one that was based on one of Pat's dreams where um, dreams he was searching for a house and the realtor said, oh, just, you know, go ahead and roam at your own leisure. And he went and he saw this beautiful library and then he walked through a crack and he realized that it was two conjoined houses. Um, and then he kind of, you know, brought that into the story of, of two Z, two Tzars and how their developments were overlapping as well. But if you talk to Chris Seriotis, and when I was doing the interviews for this book, he was like one of the first ones. And I was like, yeah, so how'd you like it? He's like, oh, it's great. And he was talking about how he's drawing, um, you know, woods. He drew a lot of woods. And he was like, well, how about the episode Mad Love? And he said, yeah, man, I don't want to talk about that. And he was half thing. <laughs> Um, but for, if you look at those Rococo backgrounds, they're nuts. Uh, those took a lot of time and probably some, some sleepless nights. I don't quite think Nick and, uh, Pat wanted Chris to go as far as he did, but I mean, he just knocked out of the park with those. Those things are so gorgeous and very, very detailed. It sells it. You're like, oh, this is not the same place. I can tell. Um, and also just another thought about how many times there's disconcerting birds. There's so many birds in the series, but like the, 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 the peacock freak out through the, through the glass. Oh, God, it cracks me up. Um, and John Cleese's performance is really it's an amazing vocal performance from him. I yeah, like the story you know, that you shared. Yeah, too. Oh, wow. I didn't realize. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I, I mean, so many of the vocal performances in this are just really masterful. I, I don't know if folks got awarded for it, but they fucking should have. It, 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 it hurts to think that they didn't. Um, but, yeah, this book definitely has an amazing story, which I won't give away here. People should go buy it, about the conversation that John Cleese had with um, folks uh, when they brought him on to do Quincy Endicott or Unky Endicott, as yeah. it were. A really lovely little character snippet in the book that I got that you will not find anywhere else. Um, uh, yeah, he, he was there, man. He was, from what I understand, he was, um, you know, he had opinions. He uh, definitely had opinions about how it should be delivered, but uh, as Pat would say, it, it definitely benefited the entire production. Mm-hmm. I mean, really... I don't remember if this was in the book. I feel like for the initial casting call, it said that they wanted it in Elijah Wood type voice. And then Elijah Wood was like, I want to do it. Is that, is that what happened with the voice casting for him? Uh, I think Elijah Wood was one of the easier ones. Um, I think Greg took a very long time to help cast. And it's funny because I don't know if this is in the book or it's private. Actually another, when you think of Elijah Wood in the movies he's been in, his other like iconic starring role was actually, they actually casted his opposite in that movie. They thought about casting his opposite in that movie in over the garden wall, but then they ended up just having to go with a kid because they couldn't make uh, the voice a kid enough. I don't know if that made sense, but the person who almost played Greg would have been like the nerdy, a nerdy dream pairing again. But, uh, Greg just did such a great job. I think, um, Colin Dean did such a great mm. job with that as well. But yeah, oh, an amazing Elijah voice. Was pretty chill. Yeah. I mean, amazing voice. Yeah, the, everyone the, had the a kid. lot of humor in that. It was, it, was pretty, it was pretty seamless, I think, from there on out. 
Like when Greg missings individual notes during potatoes and molasses, it's like exactly the right wrong note for a child voice. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Have you seen? Do you know what that's based on? Yeah, animal crackers in my soup, I presume. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. Shirley Temple. Watch that. Just the the parallel, especially you know with um. With the entire thing of a grumpy old man walking in at the end, it's, it's very much an homage. And I remember I wasn't even researching it. I think I saw that in the background. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's the same song. But, yeah, Greg nails that. And um, it's also a nice book balance. It's also a nice bookend to uh, the Latin version at the very end that's so much more sad as oh, well. Yeah. The Latin version of the uh, – it's said in Latin, and my Latin is really terrible. I think potato and lasso or something along those lines. So they, they planted that seed of innocence to just corrupt it at the very end. Uh, it was very thought out, well thought out, I thought. I mean, Greg basically going off with the beast in the end to try to save his brother because he doesn't know what else to do. And basically just sort of being a, this, is, this would be a European reference, being like a, a brother's grim agonist who solves the evil riddles in creative ways but it all happens off screen like he finds the golden comb honeycomb like off screen like it's all that like a little segment of the story is just not it's not even there i i love that the comics i mean it's so amazing that the comics exist so we can actually see some of those in-between bits get brought to life in the earlier series uh did you have you been able to read those or the, any of the ongoing comics as well? Oh yeah, yeah, I love Jim. Uh, Jim Campbell was a storyboard artist on the show, and now he draws it. And he drew you know all the original ones too. So yeah, like what, what you're talking about is, is interesting because a lot of those episodes had to be truncated. They didn't have um, too much time, and so the very first special that had like the land schooners and the kind of goofy warring colonial. Uh, militiamen I should say but they don't actually fight for anything and there's a baby uh-huh. that was supposed to be episode 3 um, when it was supposed to have a longer run time and it was supposed to be kind of an exploration of the unknown through these weird sort of land ships and uh, then the studio said no we like the talking animals and the schoolhouse so we're going to go with that and so when Pat did the special, that was the first thing that came to mind. But, yeah, the comics are great. Um, you also get to find out more about the woodsman and his daughter and kind of how yes. that panned out, too. Oh, God, I had feelings everywhere. So many feelings. <laughs> messy, messy feelings, yeah, was... but, but the good ones. Yeah, that, that's, all, that's all Maya Lavari. Um who wrote that. And I think it was some nice closure. I think one of the beautiful things about the show is it keeps you guessing. It implies a lot of endings, but there's no handholding. So the comics, especially those first, I want to say six issues and the special definitely provides mm-hmm. closure on some of the, uh, the dangling storylines as well. I mean, that's one of the things is that like, this is a mini series and I was skeptical actually that a mini series could do all of that because we're, you know, we're so addicted to these long form many year, many season shows, you know, that, I mean, we, that we all love with reason. Um, but like how much depth could really be conveyed in a mini series? I was questioning if it could actually do that. And of course the series does. 
Uh, but then having the additional comics and the additional ephemera, like, and, and the music now, like, it really does give you a, a wider viewpoint into the unknown and into the story. And yet we know, because they've said so, that there isn't going to be another season. Like, this is it. The world that we have is what we have. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because I would have loved to see some of the episodes that Pad proposed but didn't get made, but they were so dark. Uh, So he had, like, an episode about this guy who made dice out of kids' bones, and then at the end, like, you see these children without bones but are still magically alive kind of swarming him. There was a witch who would dance on people as they slept, um... There's one where that's supposed to be a little bit more humorous. And, like, back in the day, burglars were kind of romanticized. And there was, like, this story about a burglar who came in and, like, this woman was overjoyed and treated like a celebrity. So there was an episode where Wirt was a, a gentleman burglar. Um, but these were just ideas that never went into production. I think I would have loved to see those. But at the same time, I think – it's almost the perfect length just because of how easy di- easily digestible it is um, and how they were just able to condense all the goodness in that short amount of time. Not that it'd be bad if they did more, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's one of its greatest strengths. And it's funny as the book was coming out, like I didn't even necessarily like know if other people had the same fascination with it, but the more and more people you talk to, they're just like, yeah, this is great. And like, uh, Hot Topic is releasing lines of merchandise around it. Like even today, they just came up with a new line of merchandise. I'm like, well, I think it's, it's cultural implication just for those 60 minutes is like a lot deeper than I had initially. Expected. Um, yeah, there's there's tattoos out there I've seen. I've, yeah, I, I, the cosplay and so on. Like, amazing I, cosplays. <laughs> I think if we were going to see more in the Over the Garden Wall universe, it would probably be before. I think, I mean, as we saw, there's um, there's connections with Adelaide and, and Beatrice, and uh, I'm blocking her name, but the Sin Eater. Played Lorna. By Tim, uh, Tim Curry. No, Lorna. Yeah, Lorna, uh, L- Lorna and Auntie Whispers. Yeah, Auntie Whispers and Adelaide were sisters. Um, mm-hmm. And then Enoch, I, I think if we were going to see anything there, it'd be in that quadrant. Uh, a little bit of seeing like Oz before Dorothy got there, but uh, I don't, I don't know what Nick and Pat would, uh, what they have planned out. He's, uh, yeah. Pat's, Pat's keeping it pretty, his lid pretty tight, and he also has the Pinocchio stop motion movie with Guillermo del Toro to write. So I guess we just have to cross our fingers. Yeah. I don't know. I- I, yeah, I would be shocked if they revisited this, even though there's a lot of money to be had, just because this is really an artistic different project. And I feel like they kind of feel like they did what they wanted. And the comics are continuing to do the interstitial stuff, which I think is really lovely. Um, I mean, I'll tell more if they want it, but I don't expect it of them. But I had not heard about the uh, Guillermo del Toro, Pinocchio stuff. Oh, my God, that sounds amazing. And when you think well, about, like, quirky, interesting animation, like, you think about the Disney movie, the the sequence where he gets turned into a donkey and eaten by the whip. When I was a kid, that was the fucking scariest shit. So I yeah, love the absolutely. Idea of I, I don't think it's quite. I don't think it's quite on the road to production yet. So I think it's um, it's in pre-production. But yeah, my fingers are crossed that gets the funding it needs. But it's interesting you say that. If you talk to people like um, 
Terry Gilliam, like all these people count Pinocchio as a sort of grand ornate gothic staple for the type of movies that they do. And Guillermo del Toro is no different and Pat loves it too. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would be very excited if this thing comes to fruition. That's awesome. Um, One of the things I, I also was thinking about when I was sort of doing more of my episode research and seeing sort of like, the seeing sort of like the blues music um, from the, uh, the, 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 the pilot episode that we didn't, didn't get to see in the actual show. And I was thinking about sort of like the way like race is sort of absent from the story in ways that seem a, a bit strange to me. Like, you know, I, I love that Sarah, his girl crush, like when you see her, you're like, okay, she's clearly a person of color, although I, you don't really know if, if she's, what her racial background is because all you have to go on are hands. Um, but, um, you know, but you have this like very American set story and the, all these American musical forms that you're drawing from are all coming from it with the exception of like the song really from uh, tales of the Huskin hard times at the Huskin Bee are still all drawing from like African American music. And sure. like, you just don't really have any presence of characters of color. And I, it's complicated if the story is set in the South and you don't want to like have to address like slavery in a context of like something which is not focused on that and wouldn't really do it justice, but this is in the North, right? So like you really don't have to treat it the same way. And I sort of, it just feels like it's one area that I think the show kind of left out inclusion in, in, in a way that, that feels a bit weird to me once you begin to think about the musical references in there. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I can't speak for Pat on that one. I would think, I would think, part of that issue is what you mentioned. Um, you know, whether you find an acceptable answer or not. I think he was looking back to the time area, trying to make it as colonial as humanly possible. Not the unknown didn't necessarily have a geography, even though it was inspired by the North. Um, and I think he struggled a lot to try to be true to the era. Uh, with making it acceptable for kids without the trained realities that were there. So I can't speak to that, but that would be my guess for why it seemed a little less than diverse. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's um, when you're dealing with like the fantasy world in space, like there are a lot of things that, that you can do that sort of sidestep questions of like, you know, what, what uh, uh, of like, well, like, what is this person's real story? But you know, like you really do have the opportunity to have like African American characters without having to be about slavery. Like when it is sort of, it's not, it's not rooted in the South and it's not rooted in war really at all. Um, sure. So I don't know. Those are my thoughts on that. But one of the things I actually thought I'd get some, but thought I'd get some insight in um, speaking of Sarah, but I did not. And I don't know if you have any theories on this is Sarah's Halloween costume. So she has a clown suit. She has a vaguely Dia de los Muertos sort of face paint situation. Like, I, the character, there's a lot of specific in character design that goes into choosing what costumes Greg and Wart were wearing. And you can really see that whole journey get played out in the book. Um, But for the, uh, the modern day settings with the teens, like the teens could really much be wearing anything they wanted. Right. So, okay, so the, out of all the potential costumes in the world, they chose for Sarah to wear 
this like clown outfit with the skeleton makeup. So what what is it? What does it signify? What does it symbolize? I, I don't know. There has to be a reason for it because she could be anything, right? Um, yeah. I don't know if you have theories. No, actually, I think I have the answer somewhere, but I hate to do this to you, but I don't really remember it. Um, no. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I know. Pat came up with that design, and I, yeah, the sketch is in there. Um, I I think I think it's something personal. I I want to say that I might be talking off the top of my head, but I think it's something from his youth uh, and from his own personal experiences that he witnessed. Uh, but okay. he likes her a lot. Like I think there is also kind of an aspect of Pat as much as Pat is also in Greg and Ward as well. Uh, so I wish I had a, a slightly more concrete answer to that question. I can uh, I'm happy to email you once I research it. Well, I mean, one thought I might have, yeah, Evernote, one thought I might have is that, you know, she's a clown, but she's also has a death's head, so it sort of fits in with some of the the ideas around Tales of the Huskinby with um, sort of this clowning of death that's happening, and to, you know, if the skeleton, apparently, and I got this from your book, initially one of the thoughts was that there'd be skeletons dressed as gourds, dressed as people, so that there would be yeah. people costumes over the pumpkins with the skeletons underneath them. And I'm like, so Sarah's sort of like another layer on that, like a human as a skeleton and this very sort of lumpy sort of scarecrow clown, like costume sack body that sort of obscures what's inside. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit, uh, disconcerting. I would, I would love it. to see a crossover between Sarah and Enoch. I don't have an answer for you, but I think that is a very astute and uh, well-thought-out connection. Oh, well, thank you. And, I also love and who knows, because uh, Enoch got the, got the lantern at the end of the season, so you never know what hijinks could happen there. Oh, my gosh, he did. Huh. Even though, I mean, he's a cat. He's not really a pumpkin. He is a cat. But, yeah. How can he have a lantern? I don't know. It's confusing. Um, I, I, I don't know, know, yeah. One of the things I really respect about the show also is is Sarah. The fact that, like, you, the, the, you know, the girl is a rational actor. Like, so much fiction in which the protagonist is a boy who loves a girl and who doesn't know if she loves him or not is rooted in the assumption that women are irrational and unknowable and also presumes that we like things that are terrible and awful and don't like people for being real and genuine. And I really appreciated how it's like all of this fear is really in Greg's head. You know, the guy who he thinks has it all together is clearly actually played for laughs by us, but his confidence is what enables him to like try to do what he tries to do, even though he's a complete loser himself. And that Sarah isn't like an object of affection. She's a person. She can be approached like a person and she's not expecting him to be normal and she's quirky and he's quirky too. Yeah, no, she's great. She's definitely one of my favorite characters. And um, I'm blocking his name. Who's the foil? Uh, 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 think, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah, the the Funderburker. Oh, yeah. Uh, is it that, Funderburker? Funderburker. Yeah. Jason Funderburker? Yes, Jason Funderburker is sometimes the name of the frog, certainly the name of the young boy. With the awkward yeah, 
that was actually someone who, who Amalia Lavari um, had a pen pal romance with. That was the name of someone. Amalia, who's one of the writers, had a romance with. <laughs> I think between the three of them, uh, yeah, Sarah is definitely the most self-realized and the most aspirational. And, um, yeah, she's in the position of kind of helping Wirt to realize that he's his own biggest enemies and kind of the, the obstacles he's constructing, like Jason, aren't necessarily there. Uh, he's building him up to be this giant antagonistic guy, but he's kind of nice and dorky and not really much of a threat in any way. So Sarah kind of sees through that. She's the grounding point, and I completely agree. She's wonderful. Yeah, and I really enjoy, like, Beatrice's, you know, having her own story arc about her own fears and challenges with her family, and I lo- and um, and having that little bit with her at the end is really touching. Oh, one yeah. Other thought- right, Melanie. Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, one of the thoughts I have about the end is sort of, is, you know, like, obviously in the end of it, you have a situation where the, the beast tries to get Greg to become the new woodsman. Um, and the woodsman himself is sort of a symbol of, like, the failures of adulthood. Uh, like, he thinks he knows what he's doing, but he really is actually all controlled by his fears as well. So the whole story is work is at risk of becoming him, and then he overturns it. Um, and so it, the story is very much like, yes, this is work becoming an adult or t- moving towards becoming more of an adult, you know, who recognizes that he is his brother's keeper. He does have to take care of him. He does have to be a leader. He does have to be decisive. But not, but, but, but not doing it the same way the older adults have done it and have been failed and, and are failing at being healthy and integrated people. Um, because, like, you really don't have any functional adults in this show at all. All the adults are like quirky and damaged. Um, <laughs> it's tragic. Yeah. And um, he, yeah, he has to make a different way for himself. He prevents himself from becoming the new woodsman. And he, but he also uh, does yeah. grow older. Um, absolutely. And if you want to see what would happen if he hadn't fulfilled himself, uh, there's a version of work, some would say, in um, Babes in the Woods when Greg enters the Cloud Kingdom. There's this old man dressed with the red gnomish hat and, and the blue tunic, except he has a long beard and a lantern. It's kind of yeah. a nasty little uh, – it's, it's a nasty little side history of what could have been. Yeah, parallel dimension and in the fears, my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was really, yeah, it was definitely Wirt's, uh, Wirt's journey to uh-huh. kind of come to, uh, to come to grasp with his place and his selfishness as well. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that it's when I was learning that it's potentially all happening and Wirt's had, that's his biggest conflict with himself, is his selfishness. So as he, uh, as he evolved as a character, he seemed to be more caring with his brother. He really resents him and resents the obligation. And Greg is such an amazing example of exactly how young kids are. Like the characterization is just so astute. Yeah, rock facts. Um, <laughs> I mean, there was. I mean, I remember when I was first watching it. I don't remember how I discovered it. I think it was a Hulu uh, recommendation. I don't think I'd actually heard of it before. But I just remember laughing out loud at so much of what Greg had said, especially in the third episode. But um, 
he's definitely the id to uh, to work super ego. He just there's no filter, which is exactly what kids are like. So as we're coming and, and no self doubt, right? Like he still believes he can do anything and everything. Um, he hasn't had the world bang him up yet. <laughs> um, no, no, no. So, as we come on the closure of an hour, like, is there a, what, what, is there a thing that uh, you wish that the show could have expanded a little bit more on that you didn't get to have that you wish that uh, there was a little bit more of? Well, I mean, I think with the show, what impressed me was it kept on giving me what I didn't know I wanted. So mm-hmm. um, this is a longer conversation, but so when Pat started this, they didn't have many series at Cartoon Networks. So they recruited so many different people who were available in these small pockets, which kind of gave each episode a very distinct flavor. So, you know, I think you'd expect that the second episode would be more dramatic sort of folklore and fairy tales. But no, then they just shift you to sort of rural Americana in uh, the late 19th century. Um, I think if there's anything I would be curious to see, Probably the backstory of Enoch, uh, Adelaide, and the rest of them. But um, besides that, I think it's perfect in its concision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Do you have any suggestions for folks who um, are who like the series, uh, who are going to pick up the book to learn more and read more of other, you know, of other animation or other? other comics that they might be interested in? Not that there really is anything quite in its vein, but you might have some suggestions or thoughts. You know, for, for comics, I don't know. I think I'd go back further and check out Gustav Dore, uh, Posada. Um, there's a weird book, and I don't think you can find it because there's no physical copies, but it's called uh, The Complete Optimist by Child Herald, and that was a huge mm. inspiration as now. It, it's kind of a weird dark, inexplicable tome kind of about um, sort of with his own like little anecdotes and nursery rhymes, but you can definitely see some of the character design in there. But, yeah, uh, I've, also, seen, like, I've seen pages of art from that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're looking for more of the Garden Wall, there's like silent movies by F.M. Murnau, um, the Glockland Brothers, old storybooks, and, you know, the old Disney shorts. So the old grist mill is kind of homage to the old mill. I think that was a silly symphony. You know, wink and blink and nod, skeleton dance, like all of those are very ingrained in over the garden wall. I would say for folks in the New York area, there's a ongoing um, animated shorts screening series that, um, wow, I promptly forgot the name of it. Um, that happens throughout the year in the city. Um, and I, it, it actually is like 60, old 16 millimeter reels of animated cartoons that were created to be shown at home. They all have all that weird background vignetting, like where the corners of the page are not visible. An effect that gets deployed a lot through this, um, through the cartoon, actually. Um, that uh, sort of you see sort of those visuals, the visual uh, origins of that. So here it is. It's called the Cartoon Carnival Film Series in New York City. I'll tweet out a link to it for those who are interested. Um, get on their Facebook list, and you can see some really interesting early animation that you have not seen before. 
New York comics. Man, I'm jealous of New Yorkers, man. That's, yeah. That sounds like a prime destination. Yeah, I definitely think if you're interested in Over the Garden Wall, come check out some of this animation. Uh, Tommy Jose Stafes is the curator. So thank you for joining us. Um, and one more time, where can folks pick up the art of Over the Garden Wall? I, I think just about anywhere at this point. Comic stores, bookstores, mm-hmm. online. It's, uh, it's profusely distributed. Excellent. And it is a beautiful, beautiful book and a beautiful gift. Well, thank you again for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about something again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation. Listeners, we're going to be back with a non-Halloween-themed episode on Monday. Uh, We'll be joined by Michelle Fife. Oh, my gosh, I should check how to pronounce his name, who is the artist and writer and creator of the Capra comic series, which I sort of describe as being like an art comic version of Suicide Squad. Um, If that sounds like fun to you, and it should, then I hope you'll join us on Monday night at 10 o'clock Eastern to talk with him. Um, And then we'll be uh, back the week after that, um, the 30th, for a Halloween episode again, this time with Kate, um, uh, from who's the writer of Moonlighters, a new kids comic that is about kids who are vampire, sorry, who are werewolf hunters. It's a really charming all ages Halloween book with really cool diverse cast. So Katie Schenkel, who is the creator, co-creator of that, will be joining us to talk about that series. And that, my friends, is your special October lineup for Graphic Policy Radio. If you came late to the show and you want to hear it from the beginning, you can always get it at our iTunes channel. We'll be, uh, the episode will be on iTunes shortly. You'll be able to get it on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher within the next few hours. Get it on our website if you want more from Graphic Policy about comics, culture and geek world stuff uh we're at graphicpolicy.com i myself am ilana underscore brooklyn on twitter all the goddamn time and i am also uh writing some additional pieces over at graphic policy as well so hope you'll keep up with us and we will see you next week keep it geeky